Thanks, T.R. and Mallory. <clears throat> Please uh, turn your Bibles to Genesis 45 with me. Genesis 45, and again this week, encourage you to uh, be sure to check out the ministry fair if you haven't already. Encourage you to sign up for a care group if you haven't already. And then, of course, again, we just encourage you to be a part of our children's ministries if you're not already, and the Lord would call you to that. There's still some opportunities. I know, especially I think in our first grade, if, if uh, God's going to allow us to continue to, to do that the way we've been doing that, we, I think we need some more people there. So I encourage you to think about how God might be calling you to be a part of that wonderful, wonderful ministry. Well, Genesis 45, if you would stand with me, I'm going to read the first 15 verses. And as we came to the end of Genesis 44, we've been seeing Joseph interact with his brothers. And the end of Genesis 44, Judah gives this impassioned speech, offering himself up in place of his brother. He concludes, how can I go back to my father if the boy is not with me? I fear to see the evil that would find my father. And then we begin in verse 1 of Genesis 45 in Joseph's response. Then Joseph could not control himself before all those who stood by him. He cried, make everyone go out from me. So no one stayed with him when Joseph made himself known to his brothers. And he wept aloud so that the Egyptians heard it and the household of Pharaoh heard it. And Joseph said to his brothers, I am Joseph. Is my father still alive? But his brothers could not answer him for they were dismayed at his presence. So Joseph said to his brothers, come near to me, please. And they came near. And he said, I am your brother Joseph, whom you sold into Egypt. And now do not be distressed or angry with yourselves because you sold me here, for God sent me before you to preserve life. For the famine has been in the land these two years, and there are yet five years in which there will neither be plowing nor harvest. And God sent me before you, to preserve for you a remnant on earth and to keep alive for you many survivors. So it was not you who sent me here, but God. He has made me a father to Pharaoh and lord of all his house and ruler over all the land of Egypt. Hurry and go up to my father and say to him, Thus says your son Joseph, God has made me lord of all Egypt. Come down to me. Do not tarry. You shall dwell in the land of Goshen. And you shall be near me, you and your children, your children's children, your flocks, your herds, and all that you have. There I will provide for you, for there are yet five years of famine to come, so that you and your household and all that you have do not come to poverty. And now your eyes see, and the eyes of my brother Benjamin see, that it is my mouth that speaks to you. You must tell my father of all my honor in Egypt. Of all that you have seen, hurry, bring my father down here. Then he fell upon his brother Benjamin's neck and wept, and Benjamin wept upon his neck, and he kissed all his brothers and wept upon them. And after that, his brothers talked with him. You may be seated. May God encourage us through his word this morning. Let's let's pray. Heavenly Father, we would ask for your special grace on us this morning. We, we thank you first for the gospel, this, this good news of redemption for those of us who are sinners, that your son 
Jesus lived a perfect life and died in our place. And we thank you for that message. And, and I would ask this morning that you would help me and, and help all of us live out the gospel in our lives and how we treat others, uh, that we would have the same grace and attitude of forgiveness towards those who have wronged us as you have toward us. There are people here this morning who have been wronged in very profound ways, and I ask your special grace on them, encouragement on them as we think through these things. We pray for our missions partners, those who are in other places of ministry this morning, proclaiming the, the news of reconciliation and forgiveness. Help them to exemplify that in, in uh, very powerful ways today as well and in their, in their ministries. We love you. We pray these things in your son Jesus' name. Amen. <clears throat> New Year's Eve, 1995, Frances McNeil, a 78-year-old woman who lived by herself in Knoxville, Tennessee, uh, decided to go to bed early. Uh, Someone was outside her home watching the lights, and when they went out, they thought that it was an opportune time, and so they broke into her home, and Frances awoke sometime during the night to, to hear someone going through her bookshelves and drawers, and so she got out of bed, and she went into the room, and the person who was ransacking her house heard her and turned around, and raised a crowbar high over his head and then brought it down and and bludgeoned her to death. It was a heinous crime, just all that was involved in it, and just a a terrible, terrible thing. The next day, her son Mike came to check in on his mother and saw what had happened. He called the police, and later he and his brother Everett Worthington we're walking around the home looking at this, this murder scene and thinking about what had happened. And Everett would say that as he looked at the crime scene, he saw a baseball bat and he had this, this image of his mind of, of taking up the baseball bat and finding the person who did this and he says, bashing their brains in. He was just consumed with rage, which is understandable, right? Everett was also a professor, a research psychologist at Virginia Commonwealth University. And ironically, he had been studying, researching over the last several years, forgiveness. And as rage kind of consumed him and then began to ebb somewhat, he realized what he needed to do, he realized that he needed to find a way to, he says, forgive the person who had done this to his mother. Now, I I read about this story in the Atlantic magazine, and they said that Everett was a person who had undergone a, a religious experience. I don't know exactly what that means, but as Everett kind of describes the process he went through in order to try to forgive this person, it is similar to what we see 
and what we're going to be talking about this morning. Everett says he needed to do several things. For example, he needed to, to show empathy. He needed to think about the person who'd done this and, and think about what might, may have caused them to do this and what that person must be going through. So he tried to have empathy. He realized he needed to make a commitment to forgive this person, not just to kind of think abstractly, someday maybe I need to, but just, okay, I'm going to commit to releasing myself of the, the bitterness that I have and the anger that I have, the rage that I have toward this person. He also recognized that there was a need for, for ongoing commitment to this process, that he couldn't just say, well, I'm, I'm going to forgive him, and then, then later realize that he hadn't. He, this needed to be an ongoing, lifelong thing in his relationship or lack of relationship with this, this person who'd done this. Such forgiveness is impossible, it would seem. The article I read also talked about other types of, of forgiveness and, and relational discord, not just these big, heinous crimes that are done, but, but other things as well. It talked about couples who are married. It talked about couples who are married, and the researchers asked couples who are married to kind of talk about things that had happened in their past, past conflict, and they found that, that couples who were forgiving had lower heart rates and uh, lower blood pressures than, than those who were not forgiving, than those who held grudges. Researchers asked people to, to look at a hill, and they found that people who held grudges saw the hill as steeper than those who didn't have grudges. They asked, researchers asked people to, to jump, like just kind of jump up like that, and they found that people who weren't forgiving, people who held on to grudges, who held on to bitterness, they found that those people couldn't jump as high as those who were willing to forgive. It was almost as if bitterness literally weighed them down. Oracle talked about the physical benefits of forgiveness, and indeed Everett Worthington would say that his healing began not when he was filled with rage, but when he began to commit himself to the process of forgiveness. You and I know that there are spiritual benefits to forgiveness as well. We know that God has, has called us to forgiveness. And the type of forgiveness that God has called us to, again, it's, it's not just kind of a difficult thing to do. It, it seems like it's an impossible thing that God has called us to, that the type of forgiveness that he's called us to. We see that in Scripture we're called to forgive like God forgives. Paul would say in the book of Colossians, he talks about how God forgave us. We were dead in our trespasses and the uncircumcision of our flesh. This is Colossians 2. It says that God made us alive together with him, having forgiven us all our transgressions by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. So, so God worked about his forgiveness of us by personally taking upon himself the, the record of our sin, the consequences of our sin. And then the application of that is in Colossians 3, where he tells us that as we interact with one another, how are we to interact with one another? We're to bear with one another. And if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other, as the Lord has forgiven you, so you also must forgive. Same thing we see in, in the Lord's Prayer. We're called to forgive each other as God has forgiven, 
And that type of forgiveness we see in Scripture is, is not just a casual, okay, I forgive you, you've, you've done something wrong, I forgive you, whatever. No, it's, it's a forgiveness from the heart, Jesus says in Matthew 18. The forgiveness that we have is, is to be a, a deep-felt, deep-rooted forgiveness where we release another person of the relational obligation they have to us. It's a profound type of forgiveness. And not only is it like God forgives, not only is it from the heart, we also see in Scripture that it's, it's even extended to our enemies. Our love is not just to be for other believers, to those who are nice to us, but Matthew 5, we are called to love our enemies, to pray for those who persecute us. That means doing good things like forgiveness to those who've wronged us deeply. The text that we're looking at this morning is a very powerful text. It's a story of incredible graciousness. Joseph, again, serves as a picture of a redeemer, this, this future redeemer. We see this in the book of Acts, chapter 7, that Joseph is this picture, ultimately, of the, of the redeemer, Jesus. And, and here, in the Pentateuch, in Genesis 45, the people of Israel, as they're preparing to enter the promised land, have this picture of a, of a gracious, forgiving redeemer. And they understand something more about the character of God as they look at Joseph and, and what they learn about the character of God and how they are to respond to those who have wronged them helps them rightly live before God in the land that he's prepared for them. And so it is with you and me. And so it is with you and me. We need this passage. We need this picture of forgiveness, of graciousness from this, this picture of a Redeemer. Just like the Israelites, we need to know this aspect of God's character and we need to, to imitate it. So, the question before us this morning is, is how do we re- respond to those who wrong us? How do we respond to those who wrong us? And the answer that I want us to kind of explore together this morning is, kind of has two parts. This is the answer that I want us to kind of think about. It's how, how do we respond to those who wronged us? And I think the answer is, we empathize with those who've wronged us, and we emulate the one who's redeemed us. So how do we respond to those who've wronged us? Well, we empathize with those who've wronged us, and we emulate the one who's redeemed us. We empathize as we see our, ourselves in the place of the sinner. We recognize our own wrong that we've committed against other people. We recognize our own need for forgiveness and graciousness and grace. Then what do we do? We emulate the Redeemer. We we practice forgiveness as God has practiced forgiveness. How do we respond when wronged? We empathize with those who've wronged us. We emulate the one who's redeemed us. Now, there's kind of five thoughts I want us to think through that kind of flush that out this morning. But what we're going to see is that our response, how we respond, is a, a powerful test that reveals how well we understand the gospel. If I'm a person who's unwilling to forgive others, if I'm a person who's unwilling to be gracious to those who have wronged me, then I'm a person who doesn't understand the gospel. I don't understand that I'm a sinner, and I don't understand that I've been redeemed. If I am a person who cannot forgive and be gracious to others, I'm a person who doesn't grasp the gospel the way that I should. And I'll tell you, um, this, 
this text and thinking through this this passage has has overwhelmed me at times, even just this past week, and been thinking about these things. I, I've talked to Whitney about them, asking her to hold me accountable, and just some of the hard attitudes I have sometimes, and and uh, just even in, in tiny things, recognizing how my heart isn't right and how I respond when wronged as I think through these principles, and hopefully these will help you as well. I've prayed for some of you, not uh, particularly, not, not, hey, that person's not a very forgiving person, pray for them. No, I, I haven't done that, but I've, I've, I've known, as I've just thought about this message this week, I know that there are people who have had terrible things done to them, and so I've prayed special grace this week as we think through uh, through these these truths. Here, here's the first thought. How do we respond when wronged? Number one, we desperately, we desperately desire their repentance because we love them. We desperately desire their repentance because we love them. Look at what happens here with Joseph. Judah has just said these, these powerful words, and, and Joseph can't control himself. He, he says everyone needs to leave, and, and he weeps, and he weeps so loudly that, that others hear it. And Joseph, he can't keep the secret any longer. He says, I'm Joseph. Is my father still alive? And his, his brothers, understandably, are dismayed. This is not a good thing, they think to themselves. Now, throughout the whole story of Joseph, we've seen that his actions toward his brothers have been motivated by a desire for good things for them. When he hears them talking, they don't, they don't know that he can understand them. He hears Reuben talking about Reuben's recognition that this is because of what we've done to him, and, and he, he weeps then. He has to leave, and he weeps then because he's, he's sad for them. He weeps when he sees Benjamin. Throughout this story, Joseph desperately desires this relational reconciliation, and he, he wants his brothers to be right with him, and I believe right with God. It's this picture here of how God looks at us. When people wrong us, what is our, our knee-jerk reaction? What's our, what's our reaction at our, at our core? There's this test, I think I've talked about it before, the implicit association test. And I don't know how accurate it is, but it's designed to kind of see at our core how we view people from different ethnicities. So it kind of flashes pictures of different people and their and they, you can see what ethnicity they are, and then it kind of flashes words, and it's kind of designed to see how quickly you can associate positive words with people from different ethnic backgrounds. And it's supposed to kind of show your bias towards different ethnicities at your core, even, even things you're not aware of. I wonder what would happen if there was some sort of test designed to gauge how my heart responds to people who've wronged me or sort of test for your heart, flashes up a a picture of a person who's wronged you. How does your heart respond? How do you respond at your core? What God calls us to do is to have a desire to, to want people who've wronged us to repent, not because we want them to kind of say, you're right and I'm wrong and to grovel at us, but because we desperately love them and we want good things for them. Jesus models this for us in Luke chapter 19. He comes to the city of Jerusalem, and as he sees the city of Jerusalem, he weeps. He, he weeps because he loves them. He wishes he could, could bring them in like, a, like a, a mother hen does to the chicks. 
Luke 23, he prays, Father, forgive them for they know not what they're doing as his enemies have him crucified. And now Jesus, he desperately desires the repentance because he loves them. And now he desires us to exhibit the same type of heart attitude towards others. Now, why does he do that? Because as you and I, as you and I exemplify this same sort of attitude, it is a a shadow of the type of radical love that God has shown toward us. The same love that God has had towards us has has transformed our hearts through this Redeemer as we have faith in him. And and as we echo that, that love, it glorifies him. Stephen's speech in Acts 7 where he says, Father, forgive them for they don't know what they're doing. It's an echo of what Jesus says. It points to the reality of his conversion. It points to the glory of God, the radical transformation that only God could do. If you do not desire those who've wronged you to repent, if you don't have a love for them that wants them to repent and come into relationship with God, your heart isn't right before God. You know, when we want something, it, it manifests itself in several ways, right? It's lunchtime and I'm walking by a restaurant and kind of smell the, the food and a burger or something, and there's there's responses I have toward that because I, I really I'm really hungry. I, I I really want it. My mouth begins to 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 salivate. You know, I, just mm, thinking about that that big juicy burger. I I'm, I'm emotionally thinking about boy, I sure would love that that uh, burger. I'm, my mind is thinking about it. There's there 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 are responses that that show the genuineness of my desire there, and so it should be for those of us who truly want the people who've wronged us to repent. Paul in Romans 9 would would say that he has unceasing anguish in his heart because his countrymen haven't received the gospel. Here's the second thing for us to think about when we think about those who've wronged us. Number two, we compassionately, we compassionately grieve the pain their sin has caused them. Joseph sees the, the consternation that his brothers are in there. They're dismayed at his presence. And so Joseph speaks kindly to them. He says, look, come near me, please. And they come near. He says, look, I'm your brother Joseph, whom you sold into Egypt. He repeats what he said in verse 3. Now, don't be distressed or angry with yourselves. You sold me here, for God sent me before you to preserve life. Joseph, as he has seen their cries of distress, he's been moved to tears by it. This, this whole story is, is bookended by, by, by weeping. This, this whole story in verses 1 through 15, weeps at the beginning, weeps at the end. There's a, an emotional response, a, a grieving that Joseph has, not because of what has been done to him, but because of, of what sin has done to his brothers, now, if you wrong me, I may, like, I may be gracious enough to say, "Well, I hope they, hope they come to their senses." 
but I have to admit, there, there's, there's a certain part of me that whenever a person has wronged me and they start to feel bad about it, I'm kind of glad by that, right? Well, that's kind of how they should feel. That groveling's probably good for them, you know? There's that temptation, right? But what does Joseph feel? Or when we're wrong, we might say, okay, they need to feel this way. If, if they honestly assess this situation, they would see these three or four things, and these three or four things should really make them feel bad about what they've done to me. Now, what, is, what does Joseph do, do? Joseph looks at this situation, and this is, this is very profound and very, very difficult to do, but I believe it's what God calls us to do. Joseph looks at this situation and says, oh, this sin that they have committed is painful for them. And I am compassionate toward them because of the pain that they are in because of their sin. Now that is a very difficult thing to do. And yet I believe a very theologically necessary thing for us to do if we're to respond rightly to those who've done bad things to us. What do I think in order to turn my thoughts from my pain to their pain? How do I turn my thoughts from the pain that others have caused me to, to thinking about their pain. Well, think about the, the consequences of sin. There are, there are just temporal consequences of sin. If a, if a person decides to live a, a sinful life that hurts other people, we know that there are just going to be miserable things they have to live with. Think about the, the prodigal son in Luke 15 and, and all that, that went in, in his life and how difficult his life was because of his decision to live that way. Psalm 38 describes the, the spiritual oppression of the sinner. It says, um, he says arrow, your arrows have sunk. This is a psalmist speaking to God. Your arrows have sunk into me. Your hand has come down on me. There's no soundness in my flesh because of your indignation. There's no health in my bones because of my sin. For my iniquities have gone over my head like a heavy burden. They are too heavy for me. And as we think about a person who's wronged us, particularly in a grievous way, we think, that sin that they have, have brought on themselves is a heavy, heavy burden, and it, I have compassion because I know that they are bearing a burden that is too heavy for them. I have had my burden borne by Christ, but there should be compassion as I think about what they're going through. I, I should have compassion as I think about the deceptive, deceptiveness of sin. Sin deceives. And a person who has sinned against me and is... is uh, and perhaps you're choosing to continue that, that's a, that's a deceived person. Jesus talks about in John 8, the person who sins is, is a slave to sin. Man, if, if you see a person who's enslaved to something like sin, how should you respond? There should be compassion. Paul says some words to Timothy in 2 Timothy that have just been, um, these have been foundational verses for me as I've thought about ministry. Paul says to Timothy, Lord's servant must not be quarrelsome, but kind to everyone, able to teach, patiently enduring evil, correcting his opponents with gentleness. So someone opposes you, does bad things. How do you correct them? With gentleness. Why? Because God then may perhaps grant them repentance, leading to a knowledge of the truth, and they may come to their senses and escape from the snare of the devil after being captured by him to do his will. Now that's a very profound thing to say. But what it's describing there is, if there's a person who is, who is 
uh, attacking you and is opposed to you, there's a, this indicates that that person has been ensnared by the devil. They're, they're deceived by the enemy. And my prayer for them should not be, Lord, take them out, but it should be, Lord, grant them repentance. Grant them repentance. I should feel compassion. I feel compassion as I think about their breach of fellowship with God. Isaiah 59.2, your sins have created a barrier between you and God, Isaiah says. There's a, uh, there's a war going on in Washington, Illinois, that some of you may not be aware of. It's a very um, long-standing war. You've seen about it on Facebook, but there's a, a war going on in, in Washington, Illinois, between uh, runners and uh, people driving cars. Uh, and you know, I'm on both sides when I'm a runner. I'm on the runner's side. When I'm driving a car. Those runners are morons, right? Um, the one thing we agree on is that bikers are the worst, right? Um, no, I'm just kidding. Uh, someone, someone just, did you just pump your fist at that? Wow. You need to, are, is he taking notes? Because his hard attitude has some issues. No, uh, when I'm a biker, I feel sympathy toward the biker too. But anyway, there's just this war going on between, uh, automobile drivers and, and runners. And on Wednesday morning, I, I was running and uh, as I was running, there's, I was running on Cummings, uh, headed home, and there's a, kind of a busy spot on Cummings. And when I'm on the busy spot on Cummings, I try to be on the sidewalk, but I was, the sidewalk was coming to an end, and I needed to get on the other side, and so I just kind of start going over and getting ready to get on the next side of the sidewalk, and a car comes barreling down Cummings, just, um, just, just really quickly and... and um, I, I see the face of the driver, and his face is just contorted with rage. And I think, man, what's he? And then I realize it's at me. And uh, he begins to gesture just very, very wildly, like, get off the road, get off the road. And I, I think he's pointing to the sidewalk on the other side of the road, like, that's where I should be. I shouldn't be just there on the street. Now, it all happens so quick. Um, I just did my typical runner's wave, like, you know, I do this when people are going, like, hi, how you doing? Thanks for not hitting me. And, um, but then, after I do that, I realize that he's just furious with me, and, and after he drives by, it all processes, and um, my first thought is, oh, the poor man, my first thought is, I wish he would come back here and say that to my face, because we'd have, we'd have some words. We would talk about why I was running where I was running. We talk about, you know, I would show him, I would take him out of his car. Sir, do you see that this, si- this sidewalk you want me to be on over here, do you see that it doesn't exist any longer? Like, where the sidewalk ends is not just a collection of stories by Shel Silverstein. It's a reality right here. No more sidewalk. What do you want me to do? I'm headed toward that sidewalk. Give me a break. Like, that's what I'm, that's what I'm thinking. And I'm thinking about other, you know, earlier, just like a few minutes earlier, um, uh, Whitney and I, I'd, I'd run into Whitney while we were running, and, and a car had just been careening down this, this, this curve, you know, person on their cell phone, and, and I, I had been ready to wrap my wife in my arms and bear the brunt of a car hitting us both, and, you know, I'm thinking about that, these crazy drivers, and we're trying to stay out of their way, and, and all that's going through my mind, and as this, you know, as the guy's gesturing, I'm thinking about his rage, and I'd like to tell him what I could. 
And then I think, oh, right, I'm preaching on Sunday about this. <laughs> and I realized, what well, my heart added, you know, what, there's something going on there, right? Why would a person get so angry so quickly? There, there's something else going on there. Maybe, maybe a runner like damaged his car recently. I, who knows? There's something else going on. But my heart attitude, when I think about someone wronging me or, or perceived wrong, maybe I was doing something wrong there, um, my, my heart attitude needs to be one of compassion. I, I'm grieving that, the, that a person is, is this upset. Usually you're not totally innocent, right, in a conflict. But even, even when you are, how should you respond? Compassion. As you think about the pain that anger and sin and wronging another person causes. Here's a third thing. When someone else wrongs us. Number three, we carefully consider how God has sovereignly used even their evil for our good. Joseph is talking here still. And he helps them carefully consider how God has sovereignly used even, even their evil for our good. He says here, this, well, first of all, at the end of verse 5, he says, God sent me before you to preserve life. Then you come into verse 6, and he says, The famine's been in the land these two years. There's five more years. God sent me, verse 7, before you to preserve for you a remnant on earth to keep you alive from any survivors. Then verse 8, So it was not you who sent me here, but God. He has made me a father to Pharaoh and lord of all his house and ruler over all the land of Egypt. Joseph looks at this situation. He says, Look, God, God has been sovereign in this. This is, this is God's deal. God had a divine purpose that he is accomplishing even through this evil. And Joseph is going to go on to do that. In Genesis 50, dad's going to die. And the brothers are like, oh, man, what if this whole thing was a kind of a show by Joseph? And Joseph is going to have to go to them again. And, hey, no, no, guys. Guys, don't fear. Am I in the place of God? Am I sovereign over the situation? He'll say in Genesis 50, verse 19, as for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good to bring about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. So do not fear. I will provide for you and your little ones. And then I love what it says here. Thus he comforted them and spoke kindly to them. Joseph considers how God has sovereignly used even evil for good. And two truths really come through very clearly here, attention. First of all, the brothers did do evil. Like Joseph doesn't say, hey, you know, you guys, it's okay. You guys weren't really doing anything bad. You didn't mean it. He doesn't minimize the fact that what they did was wrong. He says, you meant it for evil. This, this truly was an evil thing that you did. He's not whitewashing over what they've done. He's not uh, trying to have this be this, this fake reconciliation, I'll just forgive and forget. No, he says, no, what you did was evil. But then he also thinks about this theologically. He says, and yet, God meant it for good. These things seem to be intention, and yet they're both true. And that, I believe, is very helpful for us. When we find ourselves in a situation in which evil has been done against us, we need to think about it theologically. And what does Scripture tell us about every situation we find ourselves in? This is practical theology. Psalm 76.10 says, The wrath of man shall praise you, God. The remnant of wrath you will put on like a belt. In other words, even a, a terrible thing like someone having wrath, God, you know, God's, in, God's got it. God's in control of it. 
even the purposes of people to, to bring about the death of God the Son. We read that was part of God's purposes. Acts 13 says that those who lived in Jerusalem, their rulers, because they did not recognize him, that's the Messiah, they didn't understand the utterances of the prophets, which are read every Sabbath, they fulfilled them by condemning him. So even as they worked against God, they fulfilled his plans, his purposes. Philippians 1.12, Paul says, I want you to know, brothers, that what has happened to me has really served to advance the gospel. Paul finds himself in prison. He recognizes that people have worked to put him there. There are other people who are working to undermine his ministry. And how does he respond? He responds with joy. And how can he have joy? Because he thinks about that situation theologically. Look, this has served to advance the gospel. Romans 8.28, we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. This doesn't mean the absence of suffering. This means that God uses even evil to bring about his purposes. And James 1 would say, Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds, for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. So here's a trial. What do you do? You rejoice. 1 Peter says the same thing, verse 1, I'm sorry, First Peter chapter 1, verse 6. In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, that the genuineness of your faith may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. So what do I do? What do I do when I'm, when I'm wronged? When I'm wronged by someone, when I'm slighted, when something takes place that, that hurts, I think about it theologically. I consider how God has sovereignly even used evil done against me to bring about his purposes things for my good. It's difficult. Now you're saying, well, Daniel, hold on. Are you saying if someone does something really bad to me, I just have to accept it? Are, are you saying that I just have to be a doormat and say, no, no, it's okay, fine, I, whatever, God's, God's using this for good? No. No, Joseph acknowledges the reality that hey, what you did was evil. But I believe this. I, I believe that if we, if, we start, if we start, when we look at someone sinning against us, if we start with a pain that, that's causing us, and we, when we get angry about this situation, so in other words, someone has sinned against me, and I find myself in this situation, and as I find myself in this situation, I just begin to, to, to boil with rage at the injustice of this situation. I think, how dare I not get that promotion, or how dare someone do that to someone I love, just get enraged at the situation, then it causes me to be even, it causes it to be even more difficult for me to forgive the person who's wronged me. But if instead I start with this, okay, I'm going to consider why God's put me here. I'm going to think, okay, this situation that I'm in, yes, it's bad, yes, it's not enjoyable, and yet at the same time, I recognize God has put me here. Now, I need to think about what is he trying to teach me? One of the most fruitless exercises we can do when we find ourselves in a bad situation that, that 
it seems like it's going to endure for a while, one of the most fruitless things we can do is just get a cycle of why is this happening? Why can't, why can't I get out of it? Why is this happening? You know, just kind of like a, the cycle. Instead of saying, okay, why is this happening in the sense of this so unfair? Instead we say, okay, why is this happening in the sense of what is God trying to accomplish in my life through this? And then as I begin to think about that and how he's growing me in, in endurance, how he's increasing my ability to trust in him, Second Corinthians 1, hope in him, bring me through a situation that would have caused me to despair of life itself, again, Second Corinthians 1. When I begin to think about the situation that way, it puts me in a much better frame of mind to talk to the person who's wronged me, to speak gracious words to them. Sometimes God can use the evil that someone has done against us to allow us to encourage them to repentance. We can talk about the things that they've done against us, and we say, look, this thing that you did against us, God used it in my life this way, and it can be a, a means of bringing about great joy in their lives to think, wow, God was able to, God is so great that he's even able to use this, this bad thing I did for, for his good. Fourth thing, how do we respond when people wrong us? We, we proactively care for their spiritual and physical needs. Joseph doesn't waste any time here. Verse 9, hurry, go get dad. And then say this to him, and he, the, the instructions that he gives about how he's going to provide for them are very specific. They're, he's gentle, and yet he's also firm here, right? He says, it, it says um, I'm going to provide for you. I've already got the property picked out that you're going to be on. Uh, he's thought this through. You're going to dwell in the land of Goshen. You're going to be near me. You're children. He's got it all planned out. He's been thinking about this. This isn't just something he goes, you know what? I uh, appreciate the repentance here. Let's see, what can I do for you? No, he, he's been thinking about this. Even before he realized they were repentant, he knew how he was going to provide for them. How does God the Son provide for his enemies, for those who've wronged him? He sustains the world. God sustains the universe by the power of his word. He gives good things to those who hate him. He, he allows the rains to fall on the, the good and the evil. In fact, as we think about those who have wronged us, and sometimes we can get kind of upset about the things they have, an amazing thing to think about, there's nothing that those who hate us have that God has not given them, right? And God the Son provides eternal salvation even for those who are his enemies. And then he tells God the Son tells us to, to do for those who've wronged us. We're to forgive in tangible ways. Luke, Luke 6 says, do good to those who hate you. And why does God call us to do this? Because as we do this, it points to him. It glorifies him. If we are in a relational tift with another person, severe or minor, our temptation can be to say, you know what, uh, fine, I'm a Christian, so I'm not going to go out of my way to pay them back for what they've done to me. But don't kid yourself because I am certainly not going out of my way to care for them because of what that person has done for me. They don't deserve it. But here's, here's the reality of the gospel. 
we don't deserve anything. And yet God goes out of his way to proactively care for our physical needs by sustaining the universe and providing us eternal salvation. And you and I, as we think about those who have wronged us, must respond the same way. Joseph here is a picture of a redeemer, provides for the physical and the spiritual needs of his brothers. You and I, as we encounter people who have wronged us, need to be thinking proactively, how can I care and demonstrate love and concern for those who have wronged me? We need to be praying for God, divinely provide me opportunities, supernaturally provide me opportunities to lavish love and care and sacrificial care and love on those who've wronged me. The fifth thing here, how do we respond? Well, we repeatedly speak gracious truths of the gospel to them. Joseph multiple times has been gracious here. He's, look, it's me, Joseph, verse 3. Verse 4, it's me, Joseph. He, he kind of continues to affirm his love for them. And verse 14, he falls upon Benjamin's neck and weeps, and we, Benjamin weeps on his neck. And then finally, in verse 15, he kisses all his brothers and wet, weeps upon them, and then they begin to talk to him. But they, they still aren't totally convinced of his graciousness, and it's not until chapter 50, again, he has to, you know, dad dies, and he has to say, no, guys, I'm not going to get vengeance. God was in charge of this, and once again, he has to speak gracious truths of the gospel. Now, it'd be one thing if the message of reconciliation, the message of the gospel, the message of forgiveness and graciousness toward another person, we could just do it once, right? Someone wrongs us and, okay, look, you know what? God loves you. I love you too. But it's, it's more than that, right? And if we're going to respond rightly. And, and again, brothers and sisters, I've been very transparent with my wife, with others this week. I need help in this. I can't just say, yeah, I forgive you. Um, my lifestyle has to be a lifestyle of, of, of repeatedly affirming my forgiveness and my graciousness toward those who wrong me. My, my, attitude, my whole attitude needs to be one of a desire to repeatedly proclaim the truths of the gospel, the gracious truths of the gospel. And so think about what Joseph says repeatedly. Repeatedly he's going to say, look, don't, don't blame yourself. Don't, don't, what's the gospel truth there? The person who takes on blame says, okay, I've, I've done something wrong now. I need to atone for it. And Joseph says, look, there's nothing you can do here. I'm graciously offering you my forgiveness. I'm not downplaying the reality of your sin, but there's nothing you can do here. I'm graciously providing you salvation, both physical and spiritual. Same, that's a gospel truth. We can't earn or deserve forgiveness. And Joseph, uh, complete, the, the brothers in verse 5, as, they talk, or as it talks about um, Joseph saying, don't be distressed, that idea carries with it penance, like somehow I can, 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 can pay back what's happening. And Joseph says, no, and, and that's the gospel, the message of reconciliation. Repeated grace, repeated grace is offered through Joseph's words here. How do we respond to those who've wronged us? Joseph here is is a powerful example. And there are those in this room, again, who have been wronged in in ways that that are profound by people that you love dearly, and it's hard 
for me to even wrap my head around what you've gone through. And, and yet here's God's gracious call to you. Empathize with those who've wronged you. And emulate your Redeemer. Empathize with those who've wronged you. See yourself in them and in your own need for the gospel and grace and graciousness, and then, and then emulate Jesus. Joseph here is a, is a picture of Jesus. Emulate Jesus in graciousness and in provision and in constant, in constant kindness towards those who've wronged you so that if, if God is gracious, he can lead them to repentance, placing their trust and faith in Jesus Christ alone for their salvation as well. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the good news of the gospel, the good news of Jesus, the the good news that we can have life in his name. And we thank you for the good news that we can proclaim to others in profound ways as we exercise gracious forgiveness toward them. We pray your strength as we do these things. I I pray uh, for just my my own heart that it it would just ooze graciousness. It would ooze forgiveness as I think about the gospel in, in my life and my need for it, my great profound love for you as a result of my salvation. Pray this in your son Jesus' name. Amen. Mm-hmm.